0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 and following. We got a good start with it, I thought, a week ago. I'm going to get right back to it again this morning. Remember, we have today and we have next week. Uh, This is the second. Next week is the ninth. Uh, the Wednesday after that, on the 16th, we will not have a Proverbs class on the 16th because of uh, the Schaefer Theological Seminary annual conference is uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of that week. Also spring break, so there may be folks that uh, are on spring break and out of town and whatever else as far as that goes. Am I coming through the speakers? You can hear me? All right. I just can't hear myself. That's fine. I will take it by faith that uh, that you can hear me. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. The Lord begat me. The Lord acquired me. The Lord birthed me. Uh, The Lord kanahed me. And we'll be discussing kana here this morning. And it is a term that can, doesn't have to, but can include the uh, semantic range of childbirth. uh, And it could also encompass any other, uh, it's a broad spectrum of usage That Kana would support and so by context we want to understand well what is the what is the scope of this expression and then we see birthing in uh, verse 24 we see birthing in verse 25 we actually see weaving in verse 23 although it's translated as established in verse 23 from everlasting I was established from the beginning from the earliest times of the earth and we'll have to talk about established does it mean poor does it mean molded does it mean fixed does it mean established does it mean woven and i think in this context woven is the best understanding because again we have the birthing language of verse 24 and the birthing language of verse 25 and we have the childhood language of verses 30 and 31 where i was daily his delight rejoicing always before him and we have a term of delight and a term of rejoicing which is playing all right and then the it's repeated again in fact the expressions are reversed you have delight and rejoice in verse 30 then you have rejoicing and delight in verse 31 same terms but just inverted swapped around and this is the the poetry of this as well as you see playing and laughing and the and the delight of a little kid uh, the delight of a child that's just happy as anything in the presence of their parent and the happiness of a parent in in the, the love that they have for their child. And so we have father and son terminology, uh, parent and child terminology. We have birthing language in verse 24. When there were no springs, I or when there were no depths, I was brought forth. Okay, that's childbirth. That's a delivery term. And then in verse 25, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. I was birthed and so we'll discuss that as well everything from 22 through 31 centers on the birth of the humanity of jesus christ the birthing of god the son as the humanity of jesus christ was birthed by the father infused upon the person of god the son where he became the god man and and to this day is the god man forevermore is the god man undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person forever And so we're going to take it fairly slow, we're going to make sure we're not losing anyone on the concept, and then uh, that I think will will be good after that. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside distractions and to bless our time and his truth today, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth, thankful for your faithfulness. Asking, Father, for your blessing upon our time together in your word this morning, for distractions to be set aside. Also, technically, Father, in terms of the equipment that we use, that the message today would not be impaired by any of the snapping or popping or issues that the microphone was having Sunday night. Thank you for being faithful, Father. Uh, We we rejoice, Father. The the desire that we have for uh, high-quality recordings and equipment, the desire to uh, put these MP3s on the website is not... Uh, not, we're not trying to show off or, or produce anything for the entertainment value father we just want clear effective communication for brothers and sisters that need your truth and we know that you use the website in powerful ways father around the country around the world and uh, we have brothers and sisters that do not have uh, access to face-to-face teaching and yet uh, they're able to be fed by virtue of this provision I thank you for the grace that makes it possible I thank you for the uh, truth of your word and the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit Father, we're studying some deep, deep things this morning, and I just want to thank you for opening the eyes of our understanding, and I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in point three in the outline, which is slide five. I should write that down next time. It's not working. It might work better if I turned it on. The Demons in the Pulpit, like I tell you, Sunday afternoon, and I wasn't here to hear it. I was in the library with the teenagers, but boy, I sure heard it when I listened to the MP3 Monday morning. It was, uh, was popping. All right, point three, and what I want to be clear on, all right, we're small enough. If I'm going too fast, raise your hand, ask questions, all right, the, um, there we go. Just a little slow. has to warm up in the morning. I, I can relate. The most detailed passage in all the Bible concerning the begetting of the begotten. The begetting of the begotten. All right, And we know that our Savior, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is the begotten. The only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And uh, we'll have more to say about this, I think, uh, in terms of the uh, translation in the in the New Testament when we talk about the only begotten Son and the idea of monogenes, as it appears in, in the in the New Testament, monogenes is best thought of as one and only or unique son. He is the unique son. He is the one and only son. Um, that the idea of monogenes connects to genos in terms of kind. It does not connect to Ganao in terms of born or birth. All right. And so I think it's it's valid as an as etymological argument to discuss the nature of the Monogenes as the one and only, the unique Son of God. He is the unique Son of God. But in the best understanding of monogonase that we have, we don't want to throw everything out the window and, and deny the nature of the Son as begotten. He is begotten. And we have other passages that address him as begotten, besides just the monogonase terms that we have, for example, in John 3.16 here elsewhere we have begotten today i have begotten you right psalm 2 he is the begotten one and uh, there are other sons of god in terms of the fallen angels the elect angels there are angels that are called sons of god the bene ha elohim and they are bene they are sons but they are not begotten they are created all right, and, and when Satan was rebuked, it was, he was rebuked with respect to the day in which you were created. He was a created being, as he was rebuked. No angel is begotten, but God the Son, in His humanity, is begotten, and that's what we want to be clear on. Okay, and so we're 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 talking in big themes and things that I'm usually not comfortable talking about because I'm not a abstract kind of guy. I'm a concrete kind of guy. Just give me the point, spell it out. Let me list them. Let me see them. Uh, but the, this idea of philosophical thinking or abstract thinking or these broad themes, I'm a little out of my comfort zone this morning as, as we go through this, but I hope that we all can kind of understand. Obviously, deity is not begotten. God the Son is God and man. God is eternal, not begotten, but man is begotten. Man is not eternal. Um, if, if, if you want to defend the eternality of Christ's humanity, Have fun. Show me your verses and and convince me uh, because I don't see it. I see humanity has a beginning. Humanity has a beginning. And if humanity does not have a beginning, if humanity is eternal, just as deity is eternal, then God the Son is different from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But I believe from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal, identical in terms of their nature and essence and attributes, right? But it's humanity that has a beginning say humanity has a beginning he wasn't always the god man from eternity past he was god but he became the god man when the father begat the humanity of christ does that make sense any questions about that does anyone think humanity is eternal without beginning i believe humanity has to have had a beginning or he would have been a different kind of god from god the father and from god the holy spirit and so He's not a different kind of God. He is one with the Father, one with the Holy Spirit. Trinity demands that humanity, we either have to redefine Trinity or we have to redefine hypostatic union in terms of when did his humanity begin. I believe his humanity had a beginning. It will never have an end, but it had a beginning, see. And that's what we're looking at today in Proverbs chapter 8. Also, by the way, this is nothing we wanna, we're going to ever break fellowship with. Uh, a brother or a sister or a pastor or anybody, uh, honestly, this this view is not common. It used to be taught more than it's taught nowadays, but it's not common. All right, and, and probably 99 out of 100 Christians you ever encounter on the street in other churches or this church even, they're going to assume that the humanity of Jesus Christ began with a pregnant virgin. They're going to assume that, that it was the birth in Bethlehem, it was a manger in Bethlehem when he was brought forth that when he was brought forth he was at that point with a body he was at that point human for the first time all right that the beginning of the humanity of Christ was the Bethlehem manger or some might say the the Nazareth pregnancy all right and and so that's fine relax about that just kind of you know don't don't smack him upside the head and say well you're wrong my pastor taught this better you should know better um, I think it's, it's, it's inaccurate And we have a better understanding because of Proverbs 8 and because of Colossians 1 and because of Hebrews 1 and because of Psalms and because of several other passages we're going to see in this study. Um, But, you know, you're going to encounter all kinds of people. I was talking to a pastor on the phone just the other day and and his whole view is, well, of course, the humanity starts in the manger. Where else would it start? So glad you asked. All right. Because if we can broaden our thinking and separate humanity from a physical body, that may be the biggest step of all, right? That that the humanity does not need a body to be human. My mother lost her body three years ago. Her body was was cremated and, and ground into powder and is now ashes in an urn, all right? And my mother is no less human than she was three years ago. She's still human. But she's human now in the presence of Jesus Christ, having been robed, I believe, with an interim body, as per 2 Corinthians 5. She has been robed with an interim body while she's waiting for her physical body to be resurrected, transformed, glorified in, in the body that she'll have for all eternity. She's still human. Jesus is still human. From his incarnation to now his glorified body. So whatever body you have, you're still human. So hopefully we can separate this out and the, and i believe the best understanding of proverbs 8 of hebrews 1 of john 1 of john of of corinthians 1 of psalms psalm 2 all right psalm 45 i can think of some other psalms a body thou hast prepared for me well what's that about okay a body thou hast prepared for me understand that the me precedes the body a body thou hast prepared for me i already exist But a body thou hast prepared for me It's like in the beginning god created. What does that presuppose? That there's a god that precedes thee in the beginning that created the heavens and the earth Likewise a body thou hast prepared for me presupposes a me that needs to receive that body That will then enter that body that will then live in that body for his earthly walk All right Are we good? Any questions any thoughts? Yes, sir. That does not mean that we were created at the same time. No, but you could think so. And it's, it's worth pondering uh, because uh, as far as our existence is concerned and how procreation brings about a new soul and a new person and a new being, uh, I mean, were we in the loins of Adam when Adam sinned? Yes but were we in the loins of adam before there was an adam no in terms of adam was created and, and the creation of adam and eve in on day six then as soon as adam was on this earth we can say that we were in the loins of adam genetically in potential but not in reality god the son was was existent from the beginning in in with the father john 1 1 in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god so he existed Prior to his to his body, but you and I did not exist prior to our bodies. Yeah, that's a big difference. Good question, though. Other questions, other thoughts? Okay. well, then let's proceed. This is the most detailed passage in all the Bible. Now, I want to start with Psalm two seven. All right. Today, I have begotten you today. I have begotten you. It has three New Testament allusions. It has three New Testament quotations. We saw them a week ago. I don't mind looking at them again today. But we'll we'll just start with Psalm 2. We may not look at all those other citations or allusions. But in Psalm 2, today I have begotten you. And I think it's uh, the way that it's used here in Psalms, the way that it's quoted in uh, Acts 13, the way that it's thought of, we want to be cautious with it. Because verses 1 through 6 are... a a, a setting and a context and a coherent development and then we want to ask ourselves does verse 7 belong with verses 1 through 6 or is there a break is there is there a shift in in context and in application and in in expression so why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed saying Let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. So in Psalm 2, we have a context here in Psalm 2, a context for the nations, the Gentiles, and uh, the, the nations and the peoples, as they're spoken of there. And they're devising a vain thing. They have a plan because of something they don't like. And so they have a plan to bring about something better. That's pretty human. All right. The kings and their rulers... Who rules the kings? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. Well, if you've ever had teaching in the angelic conflict, you know that the power behind the throne is Satan and his structure of the fallen angels. All right, the kings and their rulers, the power behind the throne, the humans that run this place and the, the angels that really run this place. All right. Anyway, the humanity and angelity united against God the Father and his anointed, against Yahweh and his Messiah, his Mashiach. And so we have rebellion against the Father and the Son. This is Antichrist, the the one that denies the Father and the Son, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, we can view this in some different ways and ponder it and discuss it uh, as far as when have the Gentile nations ever been under fetters and cords? Uh, When have they ever been under such bondage and such slavery that they feel like they have to throw it off? They feel like they're just chafing at it. They can't stand the way God limits what they're doing. And I would put forth that they've never been under those bonds. That uh, since uh, Adam relinquished his sovereignty of this creation, that Satan has had the dominion ever since. That this fallen world has has been under the, the curse. This fallen world has been under Satan's thumb from that point of time. When Satan offered the kingdoms of this world to Jesus Christ, it was not an illegitimate offer. He was he was the sovereign of this world. Jesus rejected it, of course, because he wasn't going to bow before Satan in order to receive it. But it was a legitimate offer because the kingdoms of this world and all this world's glory belonged to Satan. They still do to this day. I don't believe it's until the... Uh, Of course, the rapture of the church, then the restraint is lifted. He's got free reign through the tribulation. But in the millennial kingdom now, keep in mind, in the millennial kingdom, that's when Jesus Christ rules in Jerusalem with a rod of iron. That's when the nations are going to start chafing under the bonds. And so he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. This is Psalm 2, 4. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I believe the context for Psalm 2 is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, where God the Son, the Mashiach, the anointed of Yahweh, is seated upon Zion, upon my holy mountain. All right, And so it is then, in the millennial kingdom, that the Gentiles are going to be in an uproar. They're going to be conspiring together they're going to be devising a vain thing so verses 1 through 6 is millennial it's second advent not first advent it's millennial jesus christ is seated on the throne and the gentiles are not liking it the gentiles are not liking it now then we come to verse 7 and this is legitimate to look at it to ask ourselves what is the context of this i it, it switches now it switches It's now first-person, okay? Um, Although you did have a first-person quote in verse 6 from the Father's perspective. Now we're switching to the Son, and the Son is speaking in verse 7. And it's not in third-person anymore. It's not all about what the Gentiles are raging and their hatred for Jesus. But Jesus says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. Now, we need to ask ourselves well, what day is this? What day is this today? Today I have begotten you, but there is never a day, it's not fixed as to what that day is. Is that a day that he's on the throne in the millennial kingdom? Or is he thinking back to a previous appointment? Uh, he says, um, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. So there is a statement by Yahweh to his Mashiach, to his anointed, saying, I have something I want to give you. I want to bless you with many things. Ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. When did the Father make those promises to the Son? You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. All right? Now that's all spoken in the future. That's all spoken as a day that's going to come. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. So the imperative to those millennial kings is based upon a promise that previously given between the father and the son. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Understand that the rod of iron, breaking them with a rod of iron, shattering them like earth and ware, that's not yet wrath. That's not yet uh, the end of the millennium when judgment strikes and and uh, and all the rest. His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right, so the point is, in Psalm 2, we've got a very significant statement about sonship. Today I have begotten you. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. All right, this is a significant date. It is it's quoted three times in the, in the New Testament. It's alluded to three other times. Uh, at the baptism at the river jordan in Matthew 3:17 the voice opened up from heaven and said this is my beloved son all right Matthew 3:17 and Mark 1:11 and Luke 3:22 then three quotations Acts 13 Hebrews 1:5 5, Hebrews 5:5 5, 5. it is a significant verse <laughs> okay he didn't beget the holy spirit but he begat the humanity of Jesus Christ and there is a unique partnership between the father and the son that's why jesus said i and the father are one that's not to denigrate the holy spirit or diminish the third member of trinity but it's to show the, the 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 unity and the love between the father and the son i just want to make sure that we're clear on that as we move forward so we don't know what day this is it doesn't say what day it is uh, Psalm 2 doesn't tell us what day it is, but it was prior to the millennium. It was prior to the to the rod of iron. It was prior to the nations in an uproar. It was prior. And I think it was prior to every other thing you can point to. It was prior to this is the alpha moment of what we're looking at. It's called today because it's the only day there's ever been. It's day one. You understand. All right. Well, we'll talk about that some more as well. Uh, acts 13 hebrews 1 hebrews 5 and all of those contexts we see how significant the the issue is of sonship let's go to psalm 89 and again we'll see the significance of sonship psalm 89 verses 26 and 27 and this is a powerful psalm as it's fellowshipping it's dwelling upon the eternal promises to david and yet also identifying the spirit realm, the the realm of angels, an eternal dimension to things. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen all right i have sworn to and in maybe part of the problem is we keep translating david as a proper name how about my beloved all right Dawid in terms of love and, and the beloved one i have sworn to david my servant i will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations all right so this is a powerful chapter and it's focused on the promise made to david just like uh, the promise made to abraham was to abraham and to his seed the promise made to david was to david and to his seed all right that jesus christ is the seed of david seed of abraham and that's what we're looking at here all right the heavens will praise your wonders o lord your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones this is these are the angels in heaven in the divine council For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? (laughs) That that liar that said, I will be like the most high God? No, not him, not even close. Who among the sons of the mighty, the sons of El, the B'nai Ha'el, who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? There is no B'nai Ha'el or B'nai Ha'elohim. There is no son of God, angelic creation, There is no mighty... They're the the most powerful of all the angels. But none of them are begotten. None of them were begotten by God the Father. Yahweh did not beget any of them. He begat the angel of the Lord. He begat God the Son. You understand. A God greatly feared in the counsel of his holy ones. And awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you anyway the heavenly setting for this is undeniable you rule the swelling of the sea when its waves rise you still them this is the angelic sea the rebellion of of satan and his followers you yourself crushed rahab like one who is slain you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm this talks about this is the warfare in satan's rebellion before adam and eve the heavens are yours the earth also is yours the world and all it contains you have founded them The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, shout for joy at your name. Man, there's so much here. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. That's Jesus Christ as well. All of these are pictures of Jesus Christ. We get down to verses 26 and 27 though. Let's see. Verse 19. Once you have spoken in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. Who's he talking to? What's he talking about? He's talking to the angels, speaking in a vision to your godly ones, and said, I've given help to one who is mighty, exalted one chosen from the people. Is he talking about David, son of Jesse, or is he talking about David, uh, is he talking about the greater son of David, Jesus, son of Joseph, son of Mary? He's actually talking about both. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm will also strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him nor the son of wickedness afflict him, but I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him and in my name, his horn will be exalted. I shall set his hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me. You are my father, my God and the rock. Of my salvation. Are we still talking about J- David, the son of Jesse here, or have we moved on? <laughs> have we shifted prophetically, eschatologically, to the son of David, to Jesus Christ? And actually, are we seeing him crying out on the cross, calling out to the Father, to the one who is able to save him? You are my Father, my God, the Rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, here's the term firstborn the term firstborn now if you've already had a son and you have another son how does that other son become your firstborn all right how does david call him lord this is the puzzle that jesus used with the pharisees and he would he would ask him whose whose son is he is he the son of david is he the son of god whose son is he oh he's the son of david well then how does david call him lord when when the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand till i make your enemies a footstool for your feet See, it's because the son preexisted before Abraham was born. I am the son preexisted is uh, his incarnation. He is the firstborn. He has always been the firstborn. And to make David his firstborn, to make the descendant of David, the seed of David, his firstborn is what we're looking at here. So I'll make him my firstborn. That's not a throwaway term. It's real. He is the firstborn. When he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. That's the second time he brought the firstborn into the world. All right, so we have sonship displayed by David, sonship displayed by Jesus. He is the son of God, always has been the son of God. He's always been the firstborn. All right, that's not uh, created, that's begotten, firstborn born ah goodness all right if we're if we're solid on that let's go to john 1 in the beginning was the logos let's look at john 1 verses 1 through 18 and let's look at a theological unfolding everything that we're looking at in proverbs 8 everything we're looking at in psalm 89 the apostle john began his gospel in this way so significant. Matthew presents Christ as the, as the king. Mark pre- presents Christ as the servant. Luke presents Christ as the man in his humanity. But in the Gospel of John, we have the presentation of Jesus Christ as God, very God, the begotten God from the beginning. And this is how the Gospel begins in John 1.1. We're 1. going to take it all the way down to verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. How can you be with somebody and also somebody? (laughs) How can I be with Bob and Bob? I mean, does does that puzzle you? I can either be with Bob or I can be Bob. How can I be both with Bob and Bob at the same time? It's nonsensical. But for God, it's very sensical because of Trinity, because of the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, in the beginning was the Word, that is God the Son, the expression of God the Father. And the Word was with God, that is, the Son was with God, was with God the Father. Or wisdom, if you prefer to use Chachma. The Old Testament vocabulary is Chachma, wisdom. New Testament vocabulary is Logos, Word. And so the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. God the Son is with the Father from all eternity, and He is God from all eternity. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. God, the son is the agent of creation. God, the father said, let there be light. God, the son made their light. God, the son, God, the father said, let there be God, the son made it happen. All right. Everything the father designed, the son executed. The father is the architect. The son is the builder. Abraham was looking for a city whose architect and builder was God. The father designing it, the son executing it, putting it into into effect. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light, that's why when he said, let there be light, that wasn't sun, moon, and stars. That was the role of Jesus Christ in shining forth the nature of God the Father. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Alright, then we have the interlude here where we talk about John the Baptist. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, verse 9, which coming into the world enlightens every man. That's not sun, that's not moon, that's not stars, that's not any astronomical light you can think about, any physical light you can think about in the physical universe, but it is the spiritual light of God Himself, the expression of the of the Father coming through the Son to enlighten every man. The soul of humanity that is attuned to to that kind of light why would that be what would there be even with sinners even with fallen humanity what would there be in the nature of mankind in the image and likeness of god that is attuned to the very light of god the sun that shines forth well because it's the nature of, of god himself it's the nature of the Son and us in his image all right enlightens every man He was in the world, the world was made through him, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so by faith, those that receive the gospel, by faith, we become sons of God. We become like the Son of God. We become begotten. All right? even to those who believe in his name, who were born, begotten, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we become begotten of God when we place our faith in Christ. We're a new creation, that new creation, begotten of God. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice, before he had a body, he existed because the word became flesh. The word was with God. The word was God. The word created everything. But then the word became flesh. This is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In Latin, you have carne. You have, uh, you have flesh, right? And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice, only begotten from the Father. He's the one and only, the uniquely begotten. Uh, That's why John testified saying this was he of whom I said he who comes after me has a higher rank than I for he existed before me. That spells it out right there, doesn't it? I'm here to introduce somebody and he will arrive after me, but he was here before me. He's been here from the beginning. He is God, very God. All right. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. This would be the father, the only begotten God. This would be the son. Who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. All right. Now we're back to the bosom language again from Sunday morning. (laughs) All right. I'm glad my mom wasn't here to hear that. That would that would have been all that bosom language from Isaiah. All right. But here's the father's bosom and here's the son in the father's bosom. And the tenderness of that love between the Father and the Son and the begotten God in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. All right, so this is the gospel of John's theological unfolding. In John it says, um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. And in Proverbs it says, from the beginning was the wisdom acquired. So instead of in the beginning was the Logos, we have from the beginning was the wisdom acquired, consecrated, and birthed. Acquired, consecrated, and birthed. And I'm about, I'm going to change those terms, by the way. I think uh, begotten, woven, and birthed would be the better way to phrase that. Begotten, woven, and birthed. And I apologize because I meant to change that slide before this morning. The uh, kana, I'm going to render as begotten in verse 22. Rather than consecrated or established, I'm going to translate that as woven in verse 23. And then birthed uh, is where it says brought forth in verse 24 and in verse 25. Begotten, woven, and birthed. I'll have that fixed before next week. Begotten, woven, and birthed. All right, we're still good. Any questions on John one? The difference between was and became. We could highlight those if you'd like. The difference between was as an imperfect tense of Amy, Right, was was. There's only God is the I am. Only God is the eternal is. You and I can't have is statements that 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 uh, don't get rephrased as became statements. Any is statement you make or am statement you make has a become statement that you could rewrite it as. I am a pastor, right? But I can I can easily say I became a pastor, and and show you when and how and why and all that, all the rest of that. I'm a husband. I became a husband. I'm a father. I became a father. I'm a lunatic i became a lunatic all right whatever whatever i am statement and you can do the same thing all right any i am statement you want to make can be redone as a i became we have no absolute i am's god is the only one with the absolute i am's because he is the i am and so was the word was god was with god and all the wases give way to the became the word became flesh and there we have genomai this is the difference between amy and genomai the different greek verbs genomai is to become to become something that you were not before and so the word became something the word was not before the word became flesh god the son became a a, obtained a human body that's why it says a body thou has prepared for me the word became flesh it was never flesh before it became flesh And so really what we're studying in in all these weeks is, okay, the Word became flesh. And at the time that it became flesh, is that when also God the Son became the God-man? Is that when he also became human? And I'm telling you, no. He was already human. The Word was human. The Word was the God-man, all right, because he birthed wisdom prior to the word becoming flesh. I'm seeing some blank faces. Tell me this makes sense. All right. I'm going to start acting like Jeb Bush here and say, please applaud. (laughs) Did you see that speech? All right. In event, so the word became flesh. Most people will tell you, 99 out of 100 Christians will tell you, that's also when God the Son became flesh human and received his hypostatic union and that he's been the God man ever since the word became flesh a Bethlehem manger or a Nazareth virgin what have you okay but I believe Proverbs 8 says oh no 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 God the son became the God man long before the word became flesh all right Let's go back to Proverbs 8, take a look at it. Consider aspects of becoming that we see in this. Something that has not always been, but something that became. All right, Proverbs. Proverbs 8, here we go. Yahweh acquired wisdom at the beginning. And the word acquired. I'll use pretty consistently acquired. It can be rendered by, acquire, get, possess, beget. It could be rendered by any verb in English that that signifies obtaining something you didn't have before. But Yahweh acquired wisdom at the beginning. Proverbs 8.22 Yahweh kanad chachmah at the beginning. Or possessed. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. That's what it says. And it tells us who did it. It tells us who it was done to. It tells us when it happened. And it's always before. It is at the beginning. Not in the beginning, at the beginning. Before his works of old. From everlasting. From the beginning. When there were no, when there were no, before, before while he had not yet, all right, everything here is described as the alpha moment, the, the, the point of time before which there was no point of time. This is the boundary between the beginning of time and the timeless eternity past. So at the beginning of his way, before his works of old, the Lord Kanad, the Hebrew verb is Kana. Q-A-N-A-H, kanah, marvelous word, 84 old testament uses it is so ubiquitous and useful it's like the english word get i love get because get is so useful do you get what i'm talking about get all right get it yet get and we talk about all the things that we get or we get to think about what you get to do all right or in things that you want to do, but you don't get to do. Why why is get so useful? Get um, speaks of an acquisition, something that you did not previously have, but now you have obtained it. Like you get a clue. (laughs) You get a headache. You get confused. You get bored. You get um, anything. You get tired. Getting speaks of Something you didn't have and now you have it. An acquisition. And that's what the verb is. And so there's there's an infinite number of ways you can get something. You can buy it. Right? And you might use this word. Okay, I got a car last month. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean I stole it? <laughs> does it mean I, 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 I inherited it? Does it mean I purchased it? Does it mean I built it from scratch? Does it mean I birthed it? Okay, that'd be painful. But the word get, the word get says nothing at all about how, the mechanism, anything. It is, it is, just, it is, a, it is a ubiquitous term that can be used in all sorts of things. 69 out of the 84 uses, there's, there's money involved and so we can render it as buy. All right. And there's nothing wrong with translating it "buy" if there's money involved. Uh, the Lord bought me at the beginning of His way. We could we could translate it like that if there was something in the passage that indicated there was money spent, or it was obtained somehow through a, a bill of sale. That's not this context, so we're fine with that. If if there's um, if there is a pregnancy involved and an actual childbirth, well then the uh, the um, term is understood as beginning, conceiving. Okay. A woman who finds that she has gotten herself with child. What does that mean? Okay, well, there's a use of gotten or a use of get that uh, comes across in English like it comes across in Hebrew, kana. It could be acquire to possess, to beget, to uh, steal. You could even steal something. Uh, You could inherit something as far as what you get when your, your parents die or whatever else. But the point being is that what's stressed is the acquisition. What's stressed is the moment where you begin to possess something. Not just that I possess something, right? I possess this pen. Well, when did I begin to possess this pen? I haven't always possessed this pen. I wasn't born with this pen. When did I get this pen? I don't have it anymore. All right. So get. Yahweh got me. At the beginning of his way before his works of old. That's when Yahweh got me. That's when Yahweh got me. Alright, now, if getting is something that you didn't have before, but now you have it now, when was there a time that the Father did not have the Son? There was never a time that the Father did not have a Son. God the Father always had God the Son, and God the Father and God the Son always had God the Holy Spirit. But when did the Father get the humanity? of god the son all right that's what we're talking about when the father birthed the humanity of god the son when the father conceived the humanity of god the son and when the father infused that humanity onto the son rather than the holy spirit okay now the verb to beget the very first use by the way is a child term in in genesis 4 We're familiar with this. Genesis 4, the very first baby. The very first unbeliever ever born. Adam and Eve were created saved or created sinless and then they became unbelievers. But Cain and Abel were born unbelievers. And they were birthed. The man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I, Kana, I have acquired. And again, it's clear. She didn't buy, she didn't find, she didn't inherit, she didn't steal, she didn't build. She birthed Cain. Why she named him Cain. In Cain itself is a form of Kana. So. She gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have Kanad, a a man-child, the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And because the relations aren't repeated and the conception isn't repeated, the thought is that they were twins. That the the reference, the the mention of relations and the mention of conception is only one in verse 1, but the birthing is twice. So she gave birth to Cain, and she gave birth to his brother Abel. And I think that's natural. That's the that's the uh, rabbinic tradition, and it uh, makes sense to me in the uh, the Hebrew terms that are there. All right, so our very first use of kana is a childbirth term. It is not ridiculous to use kana in a childbirth term in Proverbs 8, because that's because the other terms in Proverbs 8 are also childbirth terms. So it's not ridiculous, all right? Uh, in chapter 14, verses 19 and 22, we've got other uses of kana. Genesis 14, we'll grab a few of these, 19 and 22, Melchizedek blessed uh, Abraham, said blessed be Abram of God most high, Kanah of heaven and earth, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. How is God the possessor of heaven and earth? Did he birth the heavens? Did he birth the earth? He created the heavens and the earth. And by virtue of creating them out of nothing, he now possesses them. He created them. And so here's a use of kana that refers to creation. Now, you could think, well, did he create wisdom? Did he create chokmah? Did he? Is, is, it a, is it an act of creation on Yahweh's part to bring about the humanity of Jesus Christ? Or is it an act of birthing on Yahweh's part? that brings about the humanity of Christ. I believe it's birthing on the Father's part that brings about the humanity of Christ. But there's a creation context there in Genesis 14. Also verse 22. Abraham swore to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to Yahweh, God most high, that is Yahweh el el Kana, possessor of heaven and earth. Probably Kone, I would think about it as a participle. Possessor of heaven and earth. Deuteronomy 32, 6. Deuteronomy 32. By the way, this is the first prophecy of the tribulation of Israel in this chapter. That Israel will have a tribulation and will have to be brought back to God. Verse 5 says they have acted corruptly towards him. They are not his children because they have their defect. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who has bought you? He has made you. He has established you. And I can't remember which one of those is Kana. I think bought you is Kana. He has made you. He has established you. I've got to go back and relook at that in the Hebrew again. One of those three is kana, but. okay. So it's an economic transaction. There's lots of ways I can acquire something. I could birth it, I could create it, I could build it, I could buy it. Ruth chapter 4, scads of uses there in Ruth. What's that all about? Well, when you acquire Ruth, you acquire Naomi. When you acquire, acquire this field, you acquire Ruth. Ruth 4, and this was too much for knucklehead. He didn't want, uh, he wanted the land. All right. Joshua judges Ruth. Remember, there was a kinsman closer to uh, the circumstance here than Boaz. And Boaz couldn't redeem without giving the the closer relative the first opportunity. We don't know his name. I call him knucklehead. Because he could have married Ruth. So he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before, or, or cannot it here, before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people, if you will not redeem it, or if you will redeem it, redeem it, but if not, tell me so that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, oh, I'll do it, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess. All right? And in verse 5, we have the the is used twice. And when you buy it, that's kanah, And then you also acquire Ruth. So it just gives you a flavor for the, the multiple ways that kanah can be used here. So on the day you kanah the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also kanah Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Through lover at marriage now, you've got a duty to to raise up a child because of the the man that, that died without a child. And then the closest relative said, I can't do it. <laughs> Sorry. I." Uh, he says, I don't want to jeopardize my own inheritance. Man, isn't that like all of us? Say, well, I'd love to serve the Lord, but man, I can't. I can't, you know, I got got to make a living. (laughs) I got to pursue work. I got to, man, you know, I got to put food on the table. Anyway, so uh, knucklehead loses out and Boaz gets to acquire. So at verse 8, the closest relative said to Boaz, get it for yourself. I it for yourself. He removed a sandal and Boaz said to the elders, your witnesses, today I have got, gotten from the hand of Naomi, all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malon. Moreover, I have gotten, acquired, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brother or from the court of his birth as you are witnesses to this day. Anyway, there's the story. We know the story of Ruth and the verb kanah is all throughout that chapter. Okay? Obviously, he's buying a piece of land and he's marrying a woman okay and he's getting both one by uh you know purchase and one by marriage okay i got a lot of things when i got married that's that's another story all right that's how i got state farm okay that's how i got uh, uh teachers credit union that's how i got uh, i got a lot of things when i got married all right psalm 139 verse 13 i'm running out of time Psalm 139 and verse 13. Why is Psalm 139 important? Trick question. Every passage is important. But in this connection, Psalm 139, we're going to talk about the um, God knows everything and God sees everything and God weaves us and God creates us and he knows our heart and uh, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. There's a ton of stuff that's in here. Why is kana in Psalm 139 and verse 13? Why is this weaving involved? Just because we can't see it, why is it called weaving uh, or forming? And I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Um, think about how uh, we come into existence, how procreation takes place. Anyway, there's a kana aspect here proverbs 4 acquire wisdom and with your wisdom get understanding it's translated as acquire it's translated as get but it's kana both times so kana wisdom and with your wisdom kana understanding acquire and get that's in psalm 4 verse 5 and verse 7 next week we'll come back and i'll read an article out of the theological dictionary of the old testament uh, demonstrating not only is beget a natural use for kana. But it is a natural use that's very common in uh, other uh, uh, Semitic languages cognate to Hebrew, in Ugaritic, and Akkadian, and in, in different uh, Semitic contexts where kana is naturally a childbearing term. And so we shouldn't be shocked and surprised that we have a childbearing term here with kana in, uh, in Proverbs chapter 8. All right. Last chance for questions. Or tonight, by the way. We got question and answer night on Wednesday nights. Yes, ma'am. So, uh-huh. um, mm-hmm. right a marvelous question i'm going to repeat it too for uh, anybody listening on mp3 file the the concept of the birthing of the humanity of christ prior to the creation of angels prior to the fall of angels prior to the uh, angelic rebellion and so forth how does that does that contradict or does it damage does it does it change our understanding of the angelic conflict and how it is that humanity is the resolution to the angelic conflict i think it actually contributes to the whole idea because if in fact um why without that without without god the son already being human and the, the rebellion of angels why then does the creation of humanity resolve a problem that the angels were having see however if in fact the fall of the angels is precisely because of the humanity of jesus christ because uh, that that seat is intended for his son not intended for satan in other words the angels rebelled because they did not want they did not appreciate the idea of this inferior creation coming after them and and part of the fall of satan was looking forward to being servants to inferior beings and so if in fact that is the nature of the fall of satan then the humanity of christ is already a part of that and and the birthing and the creation of adam making adam in the image of god has a whole new dimension if god the son is already human see because uh, in, in all of that connects so we'll, we'll have more to say on that in the in the in the weeks ahead yeah we'll have more to say about that because when you get to proverbs 8 31 and 32 the Son is not delighting in angels He's delighting in the world, his earth, having his delight in the sons of men. He does not play with the angels like he plays with the humans. And that's because he is the God man, not the God angel. Yeah, that's a great question. We'll have more on that too. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. yes his humanity would be everlasting but obviously the deity of god the son is eternal right yeah good way to think about that in english we tend to distinguish between eternal and everlasting and that's a distinct that's a that's a useful uh, distinction to make in english doesn't always come across in in or ionios but that's okay I like it. I use it, too. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your truth, for your faithfulness. I pray that you would expand our thinking, expand the the scope of how we're able to relate to your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the nature of his beginning and the nature of his humanity. Thank you for for this uh, study and the blessing we have to assemble together. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.